Jeez, you're louder than me today. I'm always louder than you. Are you? Yeah, my voice projects. It does. Mine usually projects massively, but I think it's because I, I, I get a cold. I can tell you get a cold. I know, I'm snotty. Did you get ill over Christmas? Of course I did. I get ill every Christmas. Really? Yeah, because that's the only time I'm around children. So if you had children... Well, I, let me just stop you right there. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Rob Cutworth. Right, now we can just start, go back to talking about bullshit. Good. Now that I've done the introduction. Okay, well, what did you do today then? Um, I, I went running. Oh, I mean, literary-wise. Oh, um, I met with some folks. I went running. Why would you tell me that? I don't Sorry. give a shit about that. Well, I? I was being honest. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, and then I made an omelet. <laughs> I went, I met two poets and this had is, you met two poets today and you tell me actually i went poets. running i met three poets today but I separately went, but i think i'm going to tell you i went running i met up with two poets and talked about poetry stuff yeah that's better like than running we're getting it? a new poetry library in manchester why did you university? go straight to that why didn't you go straight to that why did you go running first i don't understand <laughs> how does your mind I, work because i did running before i did the interesting who cares stuff? about the running <laughs> Runners make me crazy because they think it's so but important. But when I was running, I was thinking about some stuff I wanted to write. Oh. I got some good ideas. Yeah, whatever. I don't yeah, care. Yeah. I don't care about those. Tell me about the poets. Okay. Well, so I met Martin Kratz, who is... Yeah, I know him. You know, he's in charge of setting up this po- Manchester Poetry Library mm-hmm. that MMU were doing. Is he doing it? Is it? Has he got his PhD yet? He's, yeah. He's, okay, right. Um, and he's a poet himself, so it's really good that he's in charge of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's kind of trying to figure out things like what their collection policy is going to be and he's really interested in having other not just kind of straight up poetry but kind of things like very short fiction and essays and critical writing in there as well mm-hmm. and, and that's I guess, why you're involved in well I'm not I'm involved because you you're involved in everything yeah exactly but uh there it's kind of early stages planning right now so and he's really trying to get it to be a lending library so it's not just a research library but something that where the community can go in people from the community can go in and check books out what take out poetry yeah imagine that i know so so we talked about that and i met him and also um mike conley who's a poet who is Mm -hmm. based in manchester and we were talking about poetry (laughs) That we've read and liked, and some other books that we've read and liked. Mike was reading George Saunders' essay collection. Mm-hmm. Is that the thing that won the... Nope. George Saunders won the... Is it Booker? He won the Booker, didn't he? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That was um, a novel then, it must have been. Yeah. It was Lincoln and the Bardo. Yeah. Right. And that's... I haven't read it yet. I really Neither want to. I. I saw the event he did. Yeah. Uh, he's great. Everybody likes him. He's, I've not heard you know a bad why? word Because about him. he's... Like the nicest guy, yeah. genuinely. Se- I've heard him on a couple of podcasts. He yeah. genuinely seems to be like he's he's a Midwesterner. Yeah, see, very straightforward, very kind of just like no bullshit. Mm-hmm. He wrote he, in the Guardian. He wrote the most sensible piece I've ever read about a writer trying to explain how they write mm-hmm. and how that process works. How the hell do you even do that? Well, that's that's why those pieces usually suck because no one can actually explain. Things like 
how do you know when something is good and something isn't that you're writing? Yeah. You know? That's um, a very good question, and it's one I struggle... That's, that's probably the biggest problem, the thing I struggle with the most. So he, he talked about like a almost like a little barometer in your head or a sense of weight and balance. And okay. like, you know, it's really just... I like the way... I'm, this is months ago I read it, and I can't really explain it very well, but the way he explained it was more about it's a feeling that you have but he was very articulate about how that feeling worked trying to unpack the thought processes that mm -hmm. go on in his head when he's writing a piece it was amazing actually um mm. i it was published in the guardian i would re recommend looking it up that's that's the biggest thing i struggle with i just never know if, if what i'm doing is good ever and well when you say good what do you mean you i know? mean something that people would want to read and something that has some kind of literary value. That's the thing I probably struggle with the most. Does publishable mean it's good? No. Hell no. I mean, look at some of the crap that's published. Yeah, no. Look at, look at the crap that's self-published. Yeah, but I mean, I don't think the fact that something's published by a major publisher necessarily means it's good at all. No, but it's probably gone through some sort of, you know, critique at least. Yeah, I mean, okay, it's been edited. You yeah. know it's been edited. So, mm. and usually that improves work. Sometimes not. <laughs> and <laughs> we have to say sometimes not, you know. Mm. Um, what do you mean? Like, why not? What does it do? If it's sometimes, I th personally think that editing at major publishers often has a bias toward what Commerce. they've seen before, right. what they okay. know will sell, what people are comfortable with because they have experienced it before it it unfolds in the way that they expect it to yeah and they like to put them in tiny boxes don't they yeah, but, yeah. so i mean it's more about sort of algorithms and you know getting and the pros i don't think that usually you know this is a major generalization but you know I'm that's not, what we do kate yeah i mean it's I don't actually know what happens. And when you have, like, if Rosie's coming on the show, mm -hmm. Rosie Garland's she coming is. on the show, so you can... Spoiler alert. You can talk with her about the editing process because she actually has a lot to say about that. Mm -hmm. um, I genuinely cannot wait to talk to her. Uh, she's a fascinating person. I've told you, I've already told you about this, this crazy, um, what's the word, awakening I had. Because I've known Rosie for ages. I, I don't know her personally, but I've seen her around at all the literary events or whatever. And I know she's, she's got a, a deal and uh, she's putting out books. And I know she's a big goth, but that's all I knew. I didn't know she was the lead singer of the March Violets. Yeah. And it was funny. And even though I, I found that out just recently, I thought, you know, that rings a bell. Yeah. So I Googled them and started listening to their music and then suddenly realized... Holy shit, I know all of this music. Like, yeah. I used to go to a, a bar back in Calgary, this kind of gothy type place called The Warehouse. And they, the they warehouse. played. Yeah, of course it's of called course. that. Of course. And uh, they played all of those songs. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So, I, yeah, so I'm a bit. I don't know. I might, I might be a bit starstruck, actually, when I she's actually not the get lead her on the singer. Uh, was she not? No, she's, she's, well, she's a singer. I think the lead singer is a guy. No, no. You're wrong. I She's the lead them. singer. Really? You haven't listened to her. Okay. It's definitely a female lead singer, and that lead singer is Rosie Garland. Okay. 
Rosie will clear this up when she comes on. She will, yeah. It's entirely possible to be starstruck by Rosie, even if you've never heard of the March Ballads. But that's the thing, though. Because yeah, she is a superstar yeah. in every sense of the word. Yeah. Um, she's an amazing person. Yeah, but so what? So is everyone. No, no, I don't mean that at all. I mean, she is... Have you, have you ever seen her perform? No. Okay. Rosie has a horde of followers who kind of turn up to any event she does. And right. part of the reason is she's an incredible performer. I mean, oh, right. stunning. Hmm. Yep. And she, her work is incredible. It's wonderful. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be introdu- introduced to that soon. Her publisher sending me the book. Great. Before it's been published, I think. Has it been published? The yes. last one? The latest one? Yes. Oh, well, then I, it's not before. I don't feel that special anymore. No, I think it should be coming out in paperback soon. So oh, so I'll get a hardback at least. Probably. I don't oh, think it's coming out. Oh, my favorite thing in the yet. whole wide world. <laughs> um, Did you get some good books for Christmas, Rob? No, I specifically said no books. Okay. Because I've got so many I've got to read. Okay. And I, this, is, I, this is like total first world literary problems. But publishers keep sending me books. Oh. So I've got all these other books I'd never even heard of. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Are any of them good? or do I don't know. I don't know. How do you know a book's good? Well, you got to read it. I tell you it. what, there's a, the one that I just got from Picador. I can't remember what it's called. Sorry, Picador, if you're listening. But it, the cover is amazing. So it has to be a good book, right? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you test that one? Yeah. Yeah, I think there might be some sort of... <laughs> Never mind. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I bought myself books for Christmas. What did you buy yourself? Are we talking? Are we going to talk about books again? Well, it is a literary podcast. Okay, Rob. go on then. What books are they? You're going to tell me all these books by authors that are like amazingly obscure. No. Go on then. Have you heard of The Vegetarian by Han Kang? No. Okay. Well, it's a huge blockbuster <laughs> literary sensation. Okay. When it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's Korean in translation. Mm-hmm. Translated by a woman called Deborah Smith, who runs Tilted Access Press. Oh, I know that press. Yeah, they're a great press, literature and translation press, yeah. primarily Korean. Um, is it? Is that right? I, oh, yeah, that. well, I think that's she's kind of the big shot in Korean translation, okay. Deborah. But right, do you genuinely, like, honestly, I, yeah. I'll let you continue in a minute, but okay. I'm going to stop you just now. Do you genuinely think that what you just said is something that the public would know anything about. It seems quite niche. Well, do I think that what I just said is something that the public should know about? Yeah, see, but that's not what you said. Yes. You said, oh, this is a big thing. And blah, blah, blah. You mentioned it like it's going to be on like a well, Waterstone look, shelf. I mentioned, okay. On a Waterstone table at the front. I've mentioned the fact that I'm reading this new Han Kang book, The mm-hmm. White Book, okay. uh, to a few people today. And each of them has said, oh, I loved The Vegetarian. Yeah, like everyone's read it. John McGregor oh. recommended this book I'm reading right now as one of, he said in the kind of Guardian, you know, what mm-hmm. best books. And he just started reading it and he knew it was going to be one of his books of the year. Oh, right. Okay. okay. So fine, hello. Fine. Yeah. Isn't that good that he won the Costa? It's wonderful. You would think that that would result in more listeners to our interview. You, perhaps it will, Rob. Yeah. This is me, podcast boy. <laughs> really annoyed. Do you know, I looked through uh, all the old podcasts, and the bigger the author, the fewer the listens. Probably because those authors already have done quite a few podcasts. Yeah, that's annoying. And 
they've been on the verb or something. Yeah. I can't diss the verb because Ian McMillan has been so good to me. He retweets me all the time. He's a nice guy. Oh, if you met him as well. Uh, briefly. Yeah, I like his son a lot. Andrew's great. Yeah, he makes he makes good people. <laughs> He's got quality sperm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take that out. Take that out, Rob. Jeez. I'm ill. Leave me alone. I have a cold from Christmas and being around children that are ill. Okay, so but so you don't you don't have any books to talk about is what you're telling me. Uh, What's on your reading stack? All these books that have been sent to me that I yeah I don't okay. recognize the author or the title. Yeah, I but can't that's work them. stuff. Yeah. So what what's what do on I actually your, want to write? <clears throat> yeah, what do you actually want to read? I'll tell you what I'm reading this very minute. I finished that Nicola Barker novel. Wow! Congratulations. Yeah, eight hundred and some odd pages. Yeah. It's the longest book. The longest book is that the right way to put it? I am fuzzy headed as fuck. Yeah, I right think now. the longest book is longest. <laughs> Long is long the right word to, to talk about a book that's loads of pages? Longest. That well, just, doesn't yeah. seem to make sense in my head. It's it's okay. I think people understand what that means. Right. It's the longest book I've read. No, it still it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I say the words and they don't make sense. Kate and Rob break the English language. It's the thickest book I've read since it, I think. And I read that when I was fourteen. Okay. Eight hundred and thirty eight pages. But you liked it. Yeah. Yeah. What else was I going to talk about? We, you had some big things to talk Oh, I know what it was. Did we talk about the best things of 2017 yet? Best things of 2017 and predictions for 2018. Yeah. That was my brainwave. That's right. Well, let's do... Predictions See, in literature. I was going to tell you the 2017 things bit now, and then I was going to do the 2018 predictions at the end of our okay, talk. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Lay it on me. Right. You tell me what's, what's been the best thing for 2017 for you. From 2017. For the you. best thing that happened in my life in 2017. No, no, I don't, no one gives a shit about your running. <laughs> oh, I, <laughs> I had ran. Such a I, great I had run. this. You should yeah, see my man. Strava. <laughs> uh, the best thing, non-running related thing that happened to me yeah. in in 2017. Literary yeah. thing. It doesn't have to be literary, but it has to be interesting. Um. Okay. Best performance. Okay. Go on. Ocean Wong and Kaio Chingyani. Mm-hmm. Um, two poets, sorry. Uh, <laughs> of course it is. It was a Manchester Literature Festival event that was back in the spring. Gosh, that one went straight over my head. I don't even remember that well, one being a thing. Ocean Wong is a is an Vietnamese-American poet mm-hmm. who was only over here very briefly. I think he was on The Verb or... No, he, he was on uh, another poetry uh, show on Radio 4, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Kyo Chingani is uh, had his first collection uh, come out this year, and he's British, a uh, black British poet, um, and is I really like his stuff a lot. Mm-hmm. And both of them are incredible performers. Why do you like it? It's just great writing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's great writing. Um, I think I need more than inventive, that. interesting, smart, uh, but not up itself. Like mm-hmm. easy to connect with. Uh, that is the only way I can I, I can relate to poetry of any kind. I think that's why I quite, quite Andrew McMillan is like top of my list is because you read his stuff. Even though you know I'm not gay, but it's very gay poetry. Um, the the small little things inside of it you can actually you can pick things out of. You know what? Let's not leave that in. 
Okay, let's not leave in the part where you say, I'm not gay. I know, why did I do <laughs> really that? Really emphatically. Not that there's anything wrong with oh, that. Oh, God, why did um, I do that? That's okay. I feel like a dickhead. Don't worry. I'm ill. <laughs> um, so that was, my fav- that was my favorite event okay. of the year, my favorite performance. Sure. Um, um, yeah, my favorite book. Oh. I thought we talked about this already. Well, we talked about my favorite poetry book, but I don't think we talked about my favorite novel. Why didn't we do that? That's I don't know. That's the only thing I care about. Okay. It was The Lesser Bohemians by Emer McBride. You know Emer McBride? Yes, of course I know Emer McBride. That's Girls a Half Warm Thing? Yeah. Yep. Wow. So The Lesser Bohemians is an incredible book. Better than Girls a Half Warm Thing. I didn't read Girls a Half Warm mm. Thing, so I don't know. But I can tell you that um, particularly when... You, I always bring it up when people are talking about good writing about sex mm-hmm. because... That's good writing about sex. Like, okay. Emer McBride really, really knows how to do it. Right. And, and yeah, I would say. Also, it's just incredibly beautifully written. Yeah. It's really, it's written from really deep inside, you know. I'm a blusher. Oh. That's okay. It's I not know. that, it's not that kind of sex writing. Well, I tell you, this Monique, Monique Ruoffi book, I have to hide it when I'm on the bus because I do all my reading on the bus. And it's, it's putting me in a strange place. Okay. So don't read it in public then. I have to. I don't read stuff. It, I have to get it read before she comes on the podcast, don't I? Okay. Yeah. So right. anyway, so anyway that's, that's my favorite. McBride. Okay. Emer McBride. Um, yeah, because so of the sex. No, not because of the sex. Because of the writing. Because it's just incredible writing. It's all, <laughs> my answer is always the same. My favorite thing writing. is, my, I, there's nothing pleases me more than your angry face. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know what it is. That, that's if I could disturbing. only, if I could just bottle what you just did, what your face just did <laughs> when I made that comment, I would make a fortune. It was, <sighs> it was wonderful. Like uh, proper eyebrow. Yeah. Angry There's eyebrows. There's a lot of mobility in this in this section of my. Mine face. Mine too, but mine are usually happy eyebrows. Have you seen that picture that someone took of me at Rachel took of me at first draft? No. When there was some kind of incident, I was doing, I think it was an event that I was doing with First Draft. It was uh, a Christmas event mm-hmm. one year that Real, Real Story and First Draft do together. And poor Abby, our friend, was on the sound desk. And there was some kind of mishap with the mic or something or the sound mm-hmm. levels. And I, I turned around with this look on my face. Oh, like, I did. I really do remember that. Oh, my God. That was. Uh... There's pe- there are people crap. there are people that are genuinely scared of you. I know, but I'm such a sweet person. I think Rach is one of them. <laughs> Rach. Rach, we were when we were at Margaret. I shouldn't be telling you this because it was told to me in confidence. But I'll tell you anyway. I don't give a shit. I, I've already heard this story. About when we were at Margaret, yeah. when we went to watch Margaret Atwood, and um, you something was annoying you, and you were like, "They fucked up my tickets." That's what it was. Yeah. And you got up, and you had like these massive heels. Yeah. And you stomped your way across. And, 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 you know, people were just like, whoa. Yeah. American coming. That's right. That's right. That's that's the good thing about Americans. It's just, just this kind of um, self-confidence, I think. Yeah. People bread. do find that kind of scary sometimes. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. I don't know. I enjoy it. Have to say, though, you've not asked me what my favorite thing of 2017 is. Gee, Rob, what's your favorite thing of 2017? You don't care. <laughs> <laughs> this is my interested face. Yeah. Whoa, look at those eyebrows again. <laughs> In the stratosphere. My favorite thing of 2017 was an event. I went to the most middle class. What's, 
if I said the, the most hay festival. Yes. Oh my god. But, really? But I went there and Zaf, you know, Zaf Cuniel. Is yeah. it Cuniel? Cuniel. M- maybe my favorite poet in the world. I think so. I think he's up. He's he's probably number one. And I've asked him on this bloody podcast a couple of times, and he, he always says no. But he snuck me into the green room. Is it the green room? The reader, like the the writers' room or whatever. Oh my god. And it was just before Stephen Fry and Neil Gaiman went on, and they were there, and there was a bit of a... So a your shindig. favorite thing was not yeah. actually someone reading or performing. I it don't was like watching. It was being in the VIP That's right. area? Yeah. Oh, Rob. Have I not told you this Rob. before? I don't like watching people read. Oh, Rob. I don't care how good it is. I'm you, like, oh, it's, still, it's just You're just reading. into like the being an important person. No. And being in the special celebrity area? Yeah. Part? Yeah. I think that's better. So what does that say about you, Rob? I'm a vacuous... <laughs> You're superficial. Yeah, totally. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but I like to... Re- reading for me is a personal thing, and I like to do it on my own. Watching the author read something is not something that makes me excited. Yeah, you know what? And yeah. a, a, a perfect example, the, i say the worst thing of 2017, and I don't think any of these people listen to the podcast, so it doesn't matter, so I can say this, is that I went down to London to see... Owen King. Oh, yeah. And I shouldn't say this because there's two people I want on this podcast more than anyone. One of them is Zaf Cuniel, who just because he'll never come on. Yeah. And Stephen King. That's like my white whale. And yeah. it's never going to happen. But I thought, ooh, I'll go down to Owen King because he and Owen King and his father did this, so that Sleeping Beauties, this big, massive book that I've not read. But um, I thought I'd go down there, and it was not good. No, okay. He was not very... And this is... He was doing that thing that... It just seems like every time I go to watch some... Especially someone a bit famous, I, I just find it really dull. Well, look, here's the thing. As someone who has hosted author many author events for yeah. the festival and Waterstones and whatnot over the years, and watched... So many more. Yeah. Uh, working for the festival, I can say that there's nothing worse than a bad author event. Well, is it worth it though? Is it really worth it to go through all the bad ones to get to that really good? I'll one? tell you. You know what? Here's some, some people may be surprised to hear me say this, but I don't enjoy most book events. I genuinely don't enjoy most of them because most people are not good readers of their own work. Of course, they're not. And. The conversation, the in conversation bit afterwards, mm. I find excruciating a yeah, lot of the time so do I. because it's not. It's kind of the same vapid questions over and over again. Yep. It's not. Do you know what I hate the most? What? I don't have a question. I have a comment. That I, I think people who say that should be shot in the face with a. Well, shotgun. that's a Q and A. I mean, the Q and A part, the part where the audience asks questions, that's where you can get a lot of that stuff happening, yeah. and that's just makes you want to like punch yourself in the face. Yeah, on Seriously. a good day. But no, I mean, the it's really hard to host these in-conversation events. And, you know, for all I know, people are sitting in the audience when I do it going, oh my God, I can't believe she's asking her these questions. Mm. It's so stupid. But I think if you can't have a natural, it's a really artificial, it's, it's weird yeah. to sit and watch two people have a conversation. Like, yeah. that's a weird thing. Correct. Right? It's unnatural. Yep. So like, unless you can create a place create a situation in which 
the other person you're talking to forgets that there's a huge audience watching. Yeah, and podcast. You can really have a conversation, which you can do, by the way. It's mm. possible to do it. I feel like I've done it if, okay. a few times. Um, then it becomes interesting because then the person lets go, doesn't think so hard about what they're saying. Mm -hmm. It becomes a natural conversation between the two of you where you're able to respond you know, to what the other person is saying, yep. it becomes, because just listening to an author answer questions, one after the other after the other, what is the it's not interesting, yep. right? It's only interesting if it, it's an interesting conversation. You have zeroed in on the very reason why I started this podcast. Really? Yep. Oh, wow. This is great. We're getting down to it. Why, yeah. why is that, Rob? Because I didn't like literary events and I don't like question and answer interviews. I like conversations with writers. Yeah. And it's really selfish as well because I was like, ooh, I, I want to talk to this person. And strangely, everyone I've asked to talk to me said, has said yes. Well, with bar a couple of exceptions. Yeah, but... But I don't... I've never... I've not, it's very rare. The only time... <clears throat> this is funny because the only time I think I've, I've been entertained at a, an author's event was Will Self. And I know this comes up on the podcast all the time. And I don't like his writing and I don't like him. I keep saying that. But... That thing he did... Oh, he's vastly entertaining. He was so much fun. Yeah. And I, as a result, and you know, it, in the... It, I mean, that was years ago. So yeah. I, I've seen loads of them since. And I just think, oh, God, I can't wait till this is over and when I can talk to them on the podcast after and we can have a proper conversation. Yeah. And I mean, that's no diss on the interviewer because I don't think, like you say, when someone is in front of people... They clam up and they're, especially authors, I find, they're worried about saying the wrong thing because, especially in Britain, the press, the literary press will call them out. And not only the literary press, but other literary authors will go, oh, what a dummy. You know, well, because you know, the novel is held up as this kind of, yeah, I this mean, I thing that they, people should aspire to and something that is the, this piece of, um, I don't know. I don't think that they clam up so much as they're performing a version of themselves, which I don't find particularly interesting, and most no. people don't. Like, they're performing the author, you mm -hmm. know? Their projection of, of their personality, which has been modified and kind of watered down and tweaked to, you know, kind of present them in a certain way. That's right. But nothing about that is interesting, really, no. you know? So poets, We're on the same page here, I think I like poetry events okay. a little bit more because poets tend to make huge generalization here but they're because of the nature of the work they do and because there's no money in poetry and it's not the slick oiled machine the way that fiction you know novel publishing is they tend to not have had to like go Cow through that sort of operation on themselves and their yeah. persona so they tend to be a little bit more natural you can't sell out when there's no one buying <laughs> too true, Rob. Too true. I think you've summed up the poetry publishing world yes. very succinctly. Shall we move on to something else? Yes. Okay. Megan Hunter is the person I talk to uh, in this podcast. You really like her book, The End We Start From. Yep. I really like her book, The End We Start From. It's post-apocalyptic. You know, this podcast was originally formed because of my love of that sort of genre. Mm. What about what is it about her book that you liked? Uh, I really liked the form. Uh, I thought 
the form of sort of very short fragments. fragments. Um, I think fragments are kind of, they're a bit trendy right now. Are they? Yeah, they are. Um, I mean, I'm almost exclusively writing in fragments myself. <laughs> uh, so I'm writing essays in fragments right now. Okay. Um, a lot of people write essays in fragments or books in fragments. I, in fact, I wrote a short story in fragments. Um, and I think that lots of people have been doing this. Maggie Nelson wrote Bluettes. That kind of kicked everything off, I think, um, which is a beautiful nonfiction book, sort of a hybrid between poetry, criticism, and memoir. Um, and that, I, think she, I think Megan actually name checks her in the podcast. I wouldn't be surprised because her book looks like she's read some. Mm -hmm. Maggie some, Nelson. Yeah, Maggie Nelson. Uh, but I think what I liked about it, apart from the form, which I thought was really interesting and, and well executed, mm -hmm. um, I like the spareness of the prose. I like the fact that it doesn't try to do too much. It, it sits back and kind of gives, creates space for the reader, mm -hmm. you know, to, to sort of let things happen in their own mind. Yeah. So I found it a very light-handed book in a, in a positive way. Yeah. Um, it's really close as well. Like, she's just, it's all, it's just about her and her child, really, yeah. more than anything. And I thought that they, I liked the character. Mm. You know, I was interested in her predicament and what would happen to her. And so I found it a kind of quiet book in, which is strange because it's I think about that's a perfect all hell-breaking you know? And, but, but the hell breaking loose is not the story. No, and it, the interesting thing is that the, the protagonist had such a kind of quiet disposition or kind of her vantage point from all hell breaking, the, the apocalypse essentially, is this point of stillness, you know, in, in everything um, that you get a sense of like this motion around her and her circumstances are incredibly precarious at several points throughout the book um but the voice that these kind of scary horrific events are relating is like it does a strange kind of modulation you know to to the kind of the way the narrative's unfolding like i found that really interesting mm -hmm. you know what the funny thing is now that you mention it is how obvious stillness would be in a, in a world that's gone to hell, where all technology is gone, basically, where everything's gone. Mm. And yet, very few, I think, post-apocalyptic writers kind of cash in on that. Mm. So I think, she, I, I, think that's, I, I think you've nailed it, really. Like, that is the bit that makes it. Because I think when people write dystopian fiction and post-apocalyptic stuff, they tend to go very Michael Bay with it. And mm -hmm. they're like, oh, yes, and over here you've got, like, the horrific things that mm -hmm. people are doing here. and then World you know, building. Right. And I ironically, world building. <laughs> world destroying. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like, this was really a very one particular individual perspective on this story. Like, and I liked how you didn't get any sense of what was going on in the wider world. It was very... Because closed. It was Close. very closed communication had broken down and I think that that was used really effectively like because that's what it would be like you wouldn't know what the fuck was going mm -hmm. on anywhere you wouldn't know what was going on beyond like as far as you could see yeah. you know so I mean I'm thinking about there are other books where I feel like this has been there's an incredible book by Patrick Ness who is actually a young adult writer uh, who writes incredible books I mean he's best known for the chaos Walking Trilogy? Is it Chaos Waking? I can't remember, but The Ask and the Answer, a series of 
books in this sort of dystopian world where uh, it's incredible, actually, because what happens is there's some kind of disease people catch that mm -hmm. allows men to hear each other's thoughts, but not women. Huh. So, That's terrifying. Yeah, it is really terrifying. And you can imagine what happens. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the noise. Like, yeah. it drives them all crazy, basically. Oh, God. Um, so... And then he wrote this other much quieter book that I think got a little bit overlooked right after called More Than This, which is also dystopian, but it's really about like one teenager waking up in a house where like the world is kind of ended and mm -hmm. like no one else is around. And he doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. And he kind of has to try and figure it out. And that's much quieter and kind of more interior and interesting. And it kind of unfolds really slowly. Yeah. Uh, but and then there's a. Uh, Oh, God, How We Live Now by Meg Rossoff, which is another incredible dystopian book um, set in England um, about, you know, it's one of those books that it's about children and young people, but it isn't necessarily, it's for anyone, um, much like uh, the Kazuo Ishiguro book um, about the, the... The girls in the school. Yeah. Which, What's it called? Oh. Never Let Me Go. Yes. And that's a beautiful book. It is amazing. Um, so, I mean, I think what all of these books have in common is, you know, this real kind of tenderness you develop for these characters who are kind of standing in for all of us, for mm -hmm. humanity. Yep. You know, as everything's kind of crashing down about around them. I do have a soft spot for the... What's the word? How did you put it? The more action-y... Not actiony. <laughs> Did I mention I'm ill? Yeah. About uh, you know, not the world destroying bit, but but something a little bit more. Like one of my favorite books is uh, I Am Legend. Oh yeah. By Richard Matheson. Have you ever read yes, it? Have yes. you actually read it? Yes, I think years ago. Yeah, because yeah. it, it. I think that one kind of is is the perfect balance of closeness and holy fuck. It, yeah. You know, the world is everything's dangerous. Um, which that's the thing I think I, that was missing for in. I'm not missing, but it's a different book where, with uh, Megan Hunter's book and Kazuo Ishiguro, where there's not a huge sense of impending danger. No. Whereas, like, I mean, I Am Legend, it's, it's a vampire book, let's yeah. be honest. But it, there's, but it, he's, it, it takes place almost solely from inside his house. And it's nothing like the film. I, I, I refuse no, to see, I the film see the film because I, I can't. The fact that they couldn't, they actually didn't get why it's called I Am Legend is incredible. But it's the book itself is a lot more it's a lot more quiet where it's him in the house trying to figure out, you know, how to live, basically. Why do you think people write dystopian fiction? Okay, so you're someone who's spent a lot of time writing this dystopian novel. Yep. Why did you choose this area? Well, the, the easy answer is dismay with the world that you're living in. Uh, disgust with the world and how people treat each other. Um, that's certainly why I write it, because I, it, there's just, there needs to be an outlet for me to get that out where you're, rather than, you know, ranting on a podcast that nobody listens to, <laughs> um, where you're actually getting out your feelings about how terrible the world is, and especially, especially now. Like, I, I don't want to talk too much about the politics of it, because, I, I mean, I, this happens on the podcast every time the politics of the world in which we live, and it's especially bad now. And I mean, that's so such an obvious thing to say. But I, the, the weird thing about that is the more shitty the world gets, 
and the more likely people are to write dystopian fiction because of it, the less likely people want to read it. Mm. Yeah, I was I was thinking, you know, this is a bad time for satirists, yep. they say. Yeah. And also, <laughs> when the world is a, right? you're a living satire. Right. But it's much the same with dystopian fiction. Yeah. And you would expect at these times that people want escapism. Yeah. So they want to read about like, you know, I don't know, the Chronicles of Narnia or something. You know, yeah. something like soft and comforting and kind of yeah, Bridget know. Jones diary. Yeah, something something that's very much of the world, maybe mm-hmm. too. Of this world, like everything's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, like the biggest problem we have is, you know, this guy is being a dick and yeah. you know, I just ate too much chocolate. Exactly. Or you know, you know, I wanna read that. <laughs> but um I don't know. I, the thing, if there's one thing I've learned from other writers, I've asked this question a lot because I have a very pragmatic approach to things. I think generally, where I, you know, I want to make some money doing what I'm doing, mm. and I tend to ask authors, "Well, how do you make money?" And I know it's crass as fuck, but I don't care because yeah. I want to know how the hell do you make money writing? And there's so few writers doing it. But at the same time, I want to, so I don't also I don't put too much thought into writing something that will sell. And I, I mean, who am I talking to? You're the queen of writing things that don't sell. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad it's official now. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but so if something, I just, I used to really put a lot, really used to torture myself about it. I was like, well, what, why would I write this? Spend, especially on a novel when you spend so much time writing it. Why would I write something that is going to go nowhere? It's not going to be sold. It's not. Going to, and, and then you realize, like what you said about the publishing uh, industry before, nobody knows. And I'm not sure, you know, the prejudices that you think that because we're living in a, a terrible world that's, mm-hmm. you know, a living dystopia that no one wants going to read dystopian fiction. I don't actually buy it. No, I don't buy it either. It, and to be honest with you, I don't think you can generalize about this stuff. Um, I don't, I think that some books find a big readership all at once and it's usually because they're good you know what I mean it's not because yeah. of what it, it's about necessarily you know yeah um sometimes it can feel like when the underground railroad really hit race was a very very you know at a very kind of you know it was very yeah it was at a flashpoint well but you tell could me a time when it hasn't of, yeah, exactly you could say that of any time in America you know for the last like not just America, everywhere. Years. Yeah, uh, Any, anywhere in Western civilization, really. Yeah, so, I mean, I kind of feel like people like to sound off about stuff like this, but the answer is, I don't think any of us really understand it. And actually, I don't want to understand it. Like, I want to read good books. Yeah. Um, I wish publishers would publish better books, and I kind of don't care well, when they come out. Do you know what? I'm going to ask you the question you asked me at the start. What makes a better book? What makes a good book? Okay. Sometimes it isn't editing, you know? What makes a good book, for me, is the quality of the writing. Um, yeah, but what does that mean? It's, do you do you buy it? Mm-hmm. You know what I Are mean? Are the characters well-rounded? Does it seem, does it ring true for you? Within the first two yeah, or three quite personal, pages, though, isn't it? It isn't, because I think that if a book is well-written, it will make that trick happen in every reader's mind. Okay. You know? Where... If it's skillfully written, it will work. But how do you measure that? You can't measure that. Exactly. I mean, just like going back to the way George Saunders explained 
you know, how you write and how you develop the sense of what to do, how to put the words in a page effectively. Mm-hmm. It's like a sense of direction, you know? It's something that you just develop. And I think the same goes for how we, why something works and why it doesn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can talk about but even narrative that concept, structure and all works. that stuff. Yeah. Um, but honestly, I think... Are you willing as a reader to go wherever this writer takes you? Mm-hmm. Like, I have gone some totally insane places <laughs> with writers. I've gone, I've read books about things I would never have thought I was interested in. Mm. Um, and I have bonded and, like, completely fallen in love with characters who I would have been kind of not into on paper, you yeah. know, before I read the book. So I just think it's so much of it is. Can this writer, do they have the, the writing skills to impose this kind of, you know, it's like making a road, mm-hmm. you know? Can they, like, will you follow them on this road? Because mm-hmm. that is like, it's part, partially, I think on, that, on the behalf of the writer, it's like an act of will, you know? And partly it's skill. And if publishers can enter this process in a beneficial way, they will sometimes be able to say, look, you know, you've got too much going on here. You need to simplify this part mm-hmm. or. You so know, what you're talking about is storytelling. Yeah, I guess. So storytelling is for you in your mind, top of the list, top of the, you know, the list of things that make a great book. I, I know su- it seems obvious. I'm, the, I'm in the same boat. I think so. Too. I suppose so. But I think a lot of literary press and authors would disagree with that. They well, would what, say, what would they say? Oh, they would say it'd be something that, you know, it makes a point or, you know, it's poetic or it, you know, it, it, it makes mm. a, it has a, an impact on the world that you live in. It examines the human condition. Well, look, like with that cat person story that we mm-hmm. discussed last week, I mean, that makes a point. And yep. I think that if, if there was something I didn't like about it, it was that the point was poking me in the face. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was pretty obvious what point it was trying to make. Yeah. Right, and I think it's a great point that needs to be made repeatedly. It's a point yeah. that should be shoved forcibly <laughs> in in many people's faces. Yeah. So I kind of don't mind, but ideally, I don't want the the moral to be so much in the foreground. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I think that if it's if it's a good story yeah. that resonates, it will have meaning. You mm-hmm. know, it will have some kind of force behind it because the best stories come from a place of feeling like. I have to write this because, you know, like you're talking about being horrified by the direction the world's going in mm-hmm. and saying, I want to explore this in this dystopian novel. That's where the writing is welling up from. Mm-hmm. So it will be imbued with that kind of force and that kind of meaning. Mm-hmm. But, but will not... it have literary value? Well, I don't know, right? Mm. What does that even mean? Right. I'm going to end now, but I'm going to ask you one question. And this is something I I was really surprised when I was in the interview with uh, Megan. Uh There's one of my biggest, um, what's the word? Not shameful, yeah, but shameful things as a person who likes and reads dystopian fiction is that I gave up on 1984 halfway through. Mm. And so did Megan. And I think we're the only two people that have done it. Have you read it? No. Wow. I've read a lot of George Orwell's essays. Nobody's read 1984. We don't need to have read 1984 because it's so 
thoroughly represented in our culture. Like mm. we know I've I've read about it. Yeah. Enough to know that I probably wouldn't enjoy reading it. But I'm glad he wrote it because it's like a parable. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's an enjoyable book to read. But you don't know that because you've not read it. I don't know. I mean... I, that you're I, making assumptions. I'm making assumptions. I read half of it and thought, this is not a book that's fun to read. <laughs> well, see, there you go. Yeah, so I mean, I'd agree with you, but I, I can't help playing devil's advocate and seeing the angry eyebrows again. <laughs> I, I'm just going to wear a really low hat from now on. Pull it over the eyebrows for the podcast. Right, so in summary, 1984, you know, what a piece of shit. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but dystopian fiction, uh, I mean, I think it's a good time to be writing it, but it's always a good time to be writing it. Yeah, it's a good it. time to be writing, and it's more, it's, better, it's a better time to be reading anything. I know that seems quite cliched, but, you know, what better way to finish than on a cliche. <laughs> Reading is good. Oh, okay. Is, I'm doing that's that. what I we're going care. with? Yeah, okay. there's the eyebrows again. And uh, <laughs> anyway, so this is now going to be Megan Hunter. And uh, we talk about all kinds of stuff as Kate felt. Is. <laughs> rubbing your eyebrows isn't going to make them stop being angry. I'm rubbing my head. <laughs> my sore head. Right. So shame. here's Megan now. Listen. off as a chapter of that longer novel initially and I was thinking that it was going to be a woman slightly in the future um, giving birth to her first child at a time and there was going to, uh, there was going to be a flood so I knew that it was going to be um, baby and flood both but I, I was definitely writing about mother and child relationships and pregnancy and birth and mm-hmm. before I started writing that um, that part of it so I, I suppose the mother and child thing came first thematically in terms of my writing mm-hmm. overall because I wrote, was writing a lot of poems about that and kind of, I think that helped to kind of thrash out all the metaphors, as it were, and kind of explore it, you know, as much as I could. And then I'd kind of done all that pre-work mm-hmm. in a way by the time I came to write this. That's interesting. That um, it leads to two questions that I already had. Uh, the first one would be then, if it was poetry that kind of um, was the lead into this, which, to be honest, I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. Would you consider this prose poetry then? Um, it's a tricky question. It every- is tricky. I mean, I feel like you have to have like an answer that you give. Because, yeah. uh, um, I don't know, just for ease or something. I mean, I'm not that worried about really the, the sort of definition of it um, genre-wise. But I think of it as being a novel that is um, with a poetic sensibility or a novel that's influenced by poetry. I think of okay. it as being more of a novel because it's very, very narrative-driven. It covers a long space of time. I mean, you could say it was something like an... I suppose you could say it was an epic poem. Mm-hmm. At a, at a, at a, a tiny epic poem. A tiny epic poem, but you know, but it's, it, yeah, that's not really a definition that we that we use. So I suppose I think of it as being a small novel that is with a poetic sensibility, mm. um, and that I think somebody else said that, and I just thought, yeah, that that kind of sums it up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but but people have definitely said it's prose poetry, and I don't think, no, it's not when they say that. I just think, okay, I'll let I'll let you have it. Let fine. other people that's define it that too. way. Yeah. yeah. So why did you? decide to write it in fragments then? Mm. Well, I'd been playing around with that form. I'd been reading um, other books that were in that form, um, and I particularly um, Bluettes by Maggie Nelson, which is um, a big favourite of mine, and also Department of Speculation by 
Jenny Offal and books like um, there's a writer called David Markson who writes lots of little yeah you know, you know I'm sure you know mm-hmm. lots of little um, fragments and um, and Carson and I was reading I was just kind of soaking up their work a lot and trying to write things in that style but they were often quite exploratory kind of autobiographical kind of essay pieces and they weren't I don't know they, they just for me my, with my writing they didn't seem to be particularly taking off in any particular direction whereas having the very strong story um, with that form for me just seemed to just seemed to work um, better than what I've been trying before yeah and it's also I I find I don't know if this is the right word but quite minimalist I think in its writing is that yeah a fair thing to say yeah I'd say it is minimalist I mean I was there can't be any kind of extraneous words really I mean it's so it's obviously it's so short um, and, and I think the writing practice of it was probably similar to poetry in that I was, um, I was writing it, um, kind of editing it heavily as I went along. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes people think maybe I wrote a big long novel and they kind of got yeah. 80%, but I actually wrote it as it is. I mean, of course, even in poetry. So you, were, you had the big novel in mind and you just wrote exactly, the song. Exactly, okay, yeah. Right. Um, so, so yes, I said, so it's certainly, I think it is minimalist, yeah, and it's minimalist in terms of the words on the page as well, so there's lots of space around all the words, yeah. and, and that was something I, I just, I think, thought was important to kind of um, give them the weight that, that I intended, Yeah, really. Um, and it zeroes in on the, the characters themselves, it makes it about two people more than... Yeah, yeah, I hope so, yeah. Then, then the, oh, it definitely does. Would you say that you're post-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic, I can't even say it fiction writer or would you just say that's just a book that's just the way it happened I'd say it's definitely more the latter for me Mm -hmm. I mean I don't feel like I'm a big expert or that I'd read a huge amount of that genre Mm -hmm. before I wrote this I mean I was quite interested and sort of preoccupied myself with disaster and I think that perhaps also came from just feeling in the air you know feeling Mm -hmm. (laughs) feeling in the world Um, and also kind of anxiety I think if you have anxiety you sort of you know get anxious about things yep. happening and, you know, disasters. I remember when I was a child thinking, you know, as yeah. you do. And I just preoccupied with that, that feeling really. And then also, and that sort of sense of the world being completely changed. And then the sense of the world being completely changed when you have a baby and kind of how those feelings were similar, how they were different. And I was, mm-hmm. I think what kind of gave the book its start really was just ima- just putting those two things together and yeah. kind of seeing what happened. So it's yeah. this two feelings. This is a question I never, ever ask because it's, borderline offensive but because you have mentioned that you had a child Mm. at the same time you were writing this book was your own experience brought into the book at all well, I didn't have, I mean, I didn't have a child at the same time as I wrote Oh, you didn't? Book, okay. But I, I, did, I do have a child. So it is a crap question. I knew no, no, it's yeah, not a crap right. question. No, no, it's not a crap question. I do have children. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two children, but my, but I, it was actually, my son was already about, I was getting a bit blurry on the exact time, but he was about... <laughs> five six and my daughter was about three mm-hmm. um when I wrote the book so they were a little bit older they weren't babies oh right and okay. certainly my first child which you know this is about a first child and a boy my first child was was you know it was quite a few years after he was born um but I think that that was helpful really in kind of giving the ideas time to kind of compost and sort of mulch around and, yeah. and then you know Sorry, pushing this bit. Release their goodness. Um, <laughs> nice. Sense. Yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> and um, I think that I did. There was a baby born in our sort of wider family, and I think holding him and kind of suddenly and you know babies. So my friends having starting to have babies, maybe their third baby or something, mm-hmm. and holding that. I, I think I did have quite a kind of um, almost flashback 
to those early motherhood days, which are very particular. Yeah. Um, and I've been trying to deal with them anyway in my writing. I've been trying to write stuff, poems and stories. And, um, and so it was just the right outlet, really. Yeah. There was a point in the book, and I'm sure I'm the only one that thought this, um, where I, th- about halfway through, I think, where I thought, is this dystopia actually real? Or is this mm. just, you know, is this postpartum depression? Like it's a, mm. a woman, especially when... Um, I can't remember which letter the, the husband, what, R, I think. Was he the... Yeah, yeah. Because R, they're letters, yeah. I have a yeah, hard time. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. But yeah, so when He's R left, right, yeah. Yeah. I suddenly thought, oh, maybe this is just, you know, inner mind. Yeah. Um, do you think it has anything to do with kind of like postpartum depression? Um, I don't know about depression, but like certainly that feeling of kind of shock um, that I think a lot of people have after they have a baby that I think is probably just more just sort of normal... Um, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a thing called baby blues that sort of everybody gets, main, you know, a few days mm-hmm. afterwards where you have this hormonal crash and suddenly you're like, ah, you've got yeah. my dad and got the crying. And, you know, so yeah. um, I, think, I think I was writing more in this book anyway about that sort of normal, um, just, you know, life-altering shock, really. Because I think as, as far as the baby goes, I don't think she's depressed, but obviously mm. she's going through something... Terrible. Um, ..really intense mm-hmm. and difficult. But, I thought um, the kind of the, the world represented her depression. So I thought, oh... I've discovered something quite clever, and then I read a couple more pages. And went, oh, no. Well, I don't. I don't. I wouldn't say that's wrong. I mean, I, I think it's interesting, and um, I definitely don't. I definitely have thought as well, and other people have said, and I haven't disagreed about the thing about you know you could see it all as a, as a metaphor, mm-hmm. you know, for for her postpartum experience. Yes. Um, whether that's you know depression or not, I'm not sure, but mm-hmm. but certainly I, I think um, there's a sort of dreamlike quality to it. Mm-hmm. Why are they letters? Why are the names letters? Um, well, I, it was something I did quite kind of... Um, At first I thought it was, oh, <laughs> this is based on real people and I'm oh, protecting yeah. them. <laughs> no, 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 it's not. I, I just, for me, it seemed to fit um, with the book and I just kind of, it, it just came about quite naturally. Yeah. I do get asked about it now, so I know that it perhaps, I didn't realise it, it was kind of such a, I suppose I didn't realise it was such a bold move until, you know, until, and also... You know, as you introduce more characters, it becomes more prominent. But mm-hmm. for me, it fits because it's it's um, partly it's like a fable or a parable, and, mm-hmm. and the pe- there's a kind of every man, every woman quality, and that's sort of one slant on the explanation. Another slant is that it's this sense of it being a diary or a, a, a journal written to herself, or mm-hmm. at least these little reports. Yep. And if you know, if I've I've always written a diary, and I wouldn't write, you know my husband's full name or you know my children I just write their initials <laughs> yeah. because mm. I don't need to because ah, I'm great. writing to myself yeah so to me it felt quite natural and yeah. I often also you know in texts or emails you know um kiss kiss or whatever you know I don't write yeah. my full name that often so to me it felt quite um natural is that another reason it's kind of in fragments is because that's kind of the way we speak to each other now through texts and short emails and stuff like that um do you think that's kind of why this book is resonated with people yeah I don't know I I mean I think it's interesting about the thing about texts and Mm -hmm. Twitter and brief you know kind of internet the way that we internet speak the way that we sort of communicate Um, I think it definitely I I would imagine that it certainly has some kind of impact on the sort of um, growth of sort of fragmentary literature as it were but I Mm -hmm. so that's a genre in itself would you say well I guess so sorry to yeah, I okay. guess so. I mean, I don't know if it's a genre, but it's it's a there's a group of books which are um, fragmentary, and 
I'm not sure. I mean, what's something I think about a couple of things. One is that when people read my book, often they say, I read it in one sitting. Mm-hmm. I did. And Yeah, and that's not really like doing that. Because if, if we just wanted to consume it, we just read a line and then we go, okay, and then pick mm-hmm. up the next day and read a couple yeah. more lines. But they're actually consuming it almost the, you know, the opposite way to how you consume a tweet or something where you're, that's, fragment, that's fragmented in that you read a tweet, either, oh, I've got an email, oh, I've got, I've got to make the dinner, whatever. Yeah. But this is actually, people often say that they sit, I mean, I not, wasn't expecting that, I didn't, desi- you know, I didn't plan that or anything. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting as far as that relates to the sort of, to Twitter or to, to, to um, what, what we say, the low attention yeah. span. Yeah, yeah. But actually people, you know, I know it only probably only takes an hour or so, but people do tend to say that they just sat down and read the whole thing, which is yeah. obviously um, lovely to hear and... Um, isn't, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I, I suddenly thought, ooh, maybe I shouldn't have said I, I read it all in one go. No, 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 yeah. I love that. I mean, I'm always really, like, really touched by that because, I mean, I'm quite a big non-finisher of books, to be honest. Like, I, yeah. if I'm not really enjoying a book, I just don't finish it. Yeah. So whenever anybody, <laughs> that, sounds a bit, that sounds a bit of a low bar, but like, yeah. you know, but <laughs> no, yeah, well, to not only finish it, but to finish it, you know, to want to keep reading. I, mean, I think yeah. that's a compliment. I almost have a rule now, and it's, it seemed to come into play as soon as I turned 40, that if a book is more than 400 pages, it has to be amazing from the yeah. start, or it's, it's dust after 50. Or, or I don't pick it up. Mm. It just, and I don't know if, I can't decide if that is because I'm just of that age, and you know, I'm just, you know, if something bores me, I just throw it away, or if it's because you know, social media has eaten away at my attention span. I worry about the attention span thing as well, as far as my non-finishing of books. But then, when I read books that I love, I always finish them. And it doesn't really matter how long they are. Mm. So I don't, <laughs> then I think it's okay. Yeah. Because actually, you can't love everything, you know. And, and there's a thing where, when you read a lot of books, you know, obviously you hope to love everything. But, mm-hmm. but, but, but actually, books that you really love are probably still quite rare. I, I, I think so. And again, rarer the older you get, Mm. for me anyway. Yeah, I think maybe that's true, yeah. I mean, I don't know, I remember... I mean, it was good at university, I think, looking back on it, the way that I had to finish books, Mm -hmm. because, (laughs) you know, there was that kind of mandatory thing, so I probably finished quite a lot of things I wouldn't have otherwise finished, and looking back, I'm pleased that I read them, and there was that kind of total immersion. Are you pleased you read them because... You think that's a book that should be read? Or no. I'm you like, actually did I'm, love it I'm actually by the pleased, end, right? yeah. You changed your mind well, three quarters of the way through. Yeah, or, yeah, or you, know, you just, you just the sort of pleasures of something kind of grow. or yeah. And also you can kind of look back on that. Sometimes even looking back gives you a different impression. Or I think you could, you know, at the same time, it slightly contradicts everything I've just said. But I think <laughs> it is hard to really fully appreciate a book or fully know it. Until you, of course, until you, unless you finish it. Mm. So there's, you know, by by not finishing a book, there's a risk that that you could have um, fallen in love with it by the end, yeah. or at least it could have given you something. But finishing a book that's shit <laughs> is worse. Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> See, uh, I'm going to ask this question, but I already know what the answer is. Uh, what's the last book you threw away halfway through? Well, well, I do know the answer because... I know the answer is going to be, I can't, I can't say I can't that. I can't say that. Yeah. No, I don't think I can, actually. Mm. <laughs> I can't, actually, I can't think, nothing's coming to my mind that I'm, like, not saying, but I just... Yeah. Do you my biggest, the, the worst one that I did, I threw away ha- 1984 halfway through. I react. I'm not sure if I finished that either. Whoa, you're... Okay, so 
That's bizarre. I can't believe that. You got two people who <laughs> like dystopian <laughs> fiction. Don't <laughs> like dystopian fiction. Neither. I've never met anybody that didn't finish nineteen. Really? In fact, I think people lie. I think they all said. Actually, they it. I think I read an article that said that um, it was the number one book that people lie about reading. Yeah. Yeah. Lie about reading or so. Oh, lie yeah. about reading. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's it's Cause quite dull. I yeah. I remember. St- I think I started it ages ago when I was maybe. You know, and I was born in 1984, so there you go. Oh, God. Significant coincidence. Yeah. And I, uh, I don't... Yeah, I can't really remember. It was so long ago, I can't remember if I finished it, but I think that probably means I didn't. Yeah. It, the funny thing is they, they did a, uh, a play of 1984, and they showed it at the Royal Exchange in Manchester. And so I actually watched... So we, we went, went to that, because we were season ticket holders, and I'm middle class as fuck. <laughs> but anyway, which is not true. Uh, we went there, and... Um, I loved it. And we got to the end, and I was like, holy shit, Room 1 to 1 is terrifying, man. to the end? I know. <laughs> I mean, but actually, oh, I, I, really, I felt instant, <laughs> um, immediate uh, guilt for not finishing it, because the end is, it's oh. bad. Okay. <laughs> you like, haven't finished I, it either. I, you I, are. Sh- I, should, I should go and read it. I'll mm. do it. I will. <laughs> or see a play or a film. Go see the play. It's better. Okay. Um, the other thing thing that I learned about you in our taxi cab over here is that you were born in Manchester. Yes. Okay, so I, how did that happen? So I was born at St. Mary's Hospital, Manchester. <laughs> Let me yeah. give you the full story. You don't but, sound no, very mank. I don't, I don't, because I moved, we moved away when I was, um, I think it was two and a half, but my parents lived here for a long time. Well, they lived in um, Mosley, so they lived just outside, and they ran a, um, a socialist theatre company called Northwest Banner. Apparently, Brilliant. people now study at university. Yeah, and um, it was uh, it was really there are amazing, amazing photos of them kind of in the seventies in um, kind of factories and working working men's clubs. Everyone's kind of beards and flares, mm-hmm. and um, they did these kind of agitprop plays. And my dad wrote them, and my mum performed them, and with other yeah. people as well. And they had a kind of bus, and they had um, arts council grant and all this. And they, I think, they did it for about fifteen years or so um shouldn't be so vague on the facts but um so i feel and they've lots and lots of their friends really close family friends and people we still see all the time live here so um so it's really nice to nice to come back here so where would you say you're from then uh, i think i'm i i'd probably well i was born in manchester but and i'm sort of i'm proud of that you know and i hold on to that because it took you know my parents have this huge long history here but Mm -hmm. i um i feel like i'm from cambridge because Mm -hmm. i've lived in Cambridge for the vast majority of my yeah. life. Yeah, I think it, it's funny because I, I made, there was uh, prejudices in my head when I met you <laughs> and I heard your accent. <laughs> I, just, I just immediately think, oh, uh-oh, oh, really? it might be a Tory. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Something's uh, happened to my voice, actually. I think it's become posh as I've got older. Yeah. Yeah, it's, when I hear it, like, if I listen to this back, yeah. I'm like, oh, my goodness, my voice is, yeah, it's gone. So when you, like, gone when you say now socialist theatre company, I'm like, oh, yes. No, I'm 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 very far, as, hopefully as far away as you could be, almost from being a tour. Yeah, how relevant is a book like yours in a world when we're kind of living in a dystopia? Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I think it's, I think what my book's trying to do is really to to sort of um, explore the emotional um, and psychological and sort of existential impact of disaster mm-hmm. and dystopia yeah um and so it's a very interior book it's not really about it doesn't it's very light on details you'll notice it's not really cl- entirely you know explained well it's not explained very much at all what's actually happening 
Um, and so I really just wanted to explore that from a very, very... It was sort of the opposite of, you know, those disaster movies like um, The Day After Tomorrow. I was really fascinated by that. It really kind of had a big impact on me. <laughs> I cite it as an influence on my book, yeah. that excellent film. And so I went to see it, and it's, you know, this huge, huge wave of water. And I just... It's a, you know, it's such an incredibly potent image. But yeah. those people in the film are like non-people. They don't have subjectivities. I mean, you know, who yeah. are they? They're just... Yeah. I was just fascinated by that kind of non-personhood yeah. of people in disaster Bugs films. almost. Yeah, they're just like, yeah, just wooden, just, yeah, like shell people. And so I want, okay, what would that actually feel like? See, I don't know. You know. It's a fiction. I haven't experienced it directly. But I tried mm-hmm. to imagine what it would feel like. And, I, and so, sorry, this is a bit of a roundabout answer to your question. But I suppose That's okay. it's still relevant if I Podcast, I man. Roundabout <laughs> answers. Okay. That's what you want. I hope that um, it's still relevant because... Or I feel that it is because, um, you know, our, even if we were living, as people are, very horribly living through catastrophic floods right now, mm-hmm. um, I suppose that's, you know, what literature is for, is to explore that these kind of events at a deeper level and to mm-hmm. think, you know, what, what does this experience do to human beings and, and to imagine. I'm not saying I don't know. I'm not saying it's a, it's a sort of um, journalistic report and I'm not trying to kind of own people's experience who have gone through that. I'm quite... Um, you know, I, I don't. I would never want to claim that, but but that's what. Yeah, that's what fiction's doing. You're imagining it. You're trying to inhabit it, and you're trying. Mm-hmm. You're hopefully making something that that would perhaps make people. I don't write with these kind of intentions in yeah. mind, but when you're asked about it, you know, you think, okay. You don't have an agenda. Would, going no, I don't have yeah. an agenda. But you know, you. I would hope that perhaps would feel if you see you know victims of this kind of thing, you, they wouldn't it perhaps wouldn't feel quite so distant if you'd read something like this, and you mm-hmm. think, you know. What would that be like for me? What, yeah. what would it, I mean? That's the kind of question at the core of the book. What, um, <clears throat> what would would these things that feel very distant, feel very faceless, feel very far away? Um, what would it be like if something like that happened, mm-hmm. kind of here and now? Yeah. Um, Do you feel like it's coming for real? An actual flood. Maybe not a flood, but the end. Do you feel like the end is nigh? I mean, sometimes I don't know. It's it's. I suppose there are kind of cycles, aren't there, of the end? And I mean, I certainly, I'm very worried about climate change. Mm-hmm. And that's really, you know, what's at the heart of this book. And obviously, yep. at the moment, we're in a horrific political situation too. But climate change is, is, is really the, um, is really the big, the biggest, well, the, you know, the longest range kind of most terrifying threat. Yeah. And it just um, keeps getting worse. Like, you just keep finding new things. Like, oh, okay, the ice caps are melting and there's carbon going in the atmosphere. Oh, good. Methane is coming out of the fucking ground as well i i'm i'm yeah i'm really terrified by yeah it thing. is yeah. i mean i've started following some like climate I mean, look at me it's a huge like effort i'm making but <laughs> yeah. i started following some climate scientists <laughs> yeah. on twitter but they do tweet these most um terrifying you know things about graphs and very terrifying yeah. things about how things are quickening up and the you know the, the um the ice caps melting and it does seem to be getting to be getting faster and faster meanwhile we have politicians you know particularly in the states who are you know denying it faster and faster yeah. so it's it's yeah it's extremely worrying yeah i think um you mentioned uh, anxiety before mm. i'm feeling that i feel like anxiety is is something that only people who are intelligent and caring can have really like i, I you have to you have to care about what's happening in order yeah. to feel anxious about it and i think the ones who don't are either idiots or they're, or they don't care, or both. <laughs> yeah. 
it's interesting. Because yeah. it feels I mean, like they, I, I feel like the people in, and I don't mean to talk about politics, comes up on this every time because I'm obsessed. But um, I just feel like that how you cannot, how you can deny it, first of all, is, is insane. Mm. And if you don't deny it and don't care about it, that's even worse mm. in a way. It's, that's not just dumb, but uh, I hate to use the word evil. I almost said evil. I hate that word. Evil. Evil. Let's go for it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think we, we do. I, I wrote this essay about climate change and fiction, and I was trying to think about it there a bit more. And I I, I, um, I do think that we perhaps, we, we, we are in denial in a way. Or we, you know, we live our lives. We're not so perhaps, or maybe you are, which is excellent. But, you know, waking up every morning and thinking, right, climate change. You know, yeah. what am I going to do? I think about, it hit, you know, it, yeah. There's a kind of level of perhaps sporadic. Yeah. Engagement, even for those of us who are very worried about yeah. it. I'm, I'm almost pushing into nihilism. Mm. Where I'm just like, I know it's happening, but no one's going to fix it, so why bother? <laughs> you know, I'll do my recycling and I've got my little hybrid car, mm. but, you know, maybe, maybe we should ride this into the ground and <laughs> enjoy it while it lasts. That, I have to say that thought pops in every now and again. I didn't mean for this to get so dark. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I guess it's understandable. <laughs> yeah. Should we go to something lighter? Okay, sure. Okay, so this is your first novel. Yeah. That's been... Um, is it your first novel or your first published novel, first of all? Oh, um, it's my first completed novel, I would say, mm -hmm. and my first published novel. I've definitely had about, you know, a thousand and one attempts in the past. Yes. So take me through the moment when... Is it Picador? Yep. Uh, call, emailed and said, "Yeah, we want it." Oh well, yes, it was. It was very unexpected and exciting at the time because there was an auction between different publishers. So many. You're the third person that's been on this podcast <laughs> yeah. that said that, and it makes me crazy. Yeah. But anyway, go on. Um, I'm happy for you. I'm I very happy for you. I heard your podcast with them. Um, oh, Kit Duvall. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't quite like that. Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, there was there were a number. Of, so it was very exciting. We went around and met different publishers and spoke to them. Yeah. And yeah, it was amazing for me because you know I'd been kind of at home with my kids and doing you know an admin job and at the university and I was just kind yeah. of you know I really didn't I really didn't expect anything like that to happen. I mean I didn't mm -hmm. even hope for anything like that because it's it's very very short. Mm -hmm. it's, quite strange you know yeah. form wise I, yeah. I really didn't experimental I, is all the words okay. that uh, is the word that everyone's used let's, about let's you that I've go read. for experimental and yeah. yeah it was yeah it was it was all those things and I so I, I I you know I didn't have that kind of hope for it at all I really really didn't so mm -hmm. it was a big shock um and obviously it's a wonderful it's a wonderful shock but um but it was nonetheless a shock and then um yeah so that happened and, and it's amazing and then it's being published in different countries and mm -hmm. which is really kind of um yeah a bit mind-blowing really it's just about to Fantastic. come out in the states next month yeah it got some not an award independent booksellers yeah the indie next other. list so okay. it's their number one recommendation for november there it's like a all, uh, well i don't know if it's all the independent bookshops but i think it's most in america they kind of have these recommendations which is yeah. amazing because that's exactly you know who you'd want to yeah. recommend your book so nice i also do this very incredibly crass question uh on each podcast I think I know the answer to this, but uh, do you, because your book went to auction, do you find that you can, because most writers can't support themselves with writing alone. Mm -hmm. If there's something I've learned in this podcast, it's that. Like mm -hmm. even 
yeah. you know, great writers yeah. have to do lecturing jobs or whatever. Like, mm. do you find that you you've made it? No. <laughs> right. Okay. So you work. Do you, you do you have it? I don't actually at the moment, and to right. be honest, I can't really see how I would because. I'm so busy. I'm genuinely... Mm. I mean, I've had other times where I've been like, I'm so busy, I'm not really. Yeah. But I, right now, I am I am very busy. Um, yeah. But, um, and, you know, you couldn't really have a job where you'd be like, okay, I've got to go now to mm. Manchester. And, you know... Yeah. Um, I'm sure they'd give you a leave of absence. I think, yeah, I mean, I've been able to have some time out of work, let's mm-hmm. say that. Yeah. I've had some time. I did give him my notice and left my job and Brilliant. had some time out of work. So you've had, you've had, this, you've had the, the full writer's dream then, basically. It, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, yes, it has. It yeah. was. It was amazing to just because you know things were very, very stretched. With you know, two little kids, my husband's mm-hmm. working and training, and you know I was working and writing, and things were just like you know the house was like, full tilt. It was yeah. It was so that was really nice to just kind of okay. I can pick them up from school, and I can you know, and and to have that sort of time that I hadn't had. I guess since I was a student of kind of going to the library and just having while they were at school, you know, having yep. time to just think and. Right, so mm. okay. it's been very nice. Great. I, uh, I'm going to ask you this. This is the question I always finish on. And I've heard you answer it, but I'm not going to let you get away with the answer that you've done before. What are you writing now? I know you don't like to talk about uh, it because you think it jinxes you or something. <laughs> I'm writing. Um, I'm trying to write a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried to write other novels across this year, and I've had a few false starts, mm-hmm. which is which is one of the reasons that I don't. Okay, so you might be you might say that you're writing something and then you'll it, be like, "Where's it, your book about yeah. you know space aliens?" Yeah. It's not about space aliens. <laughs> I, did, I did consider a book about space aliens. Yeah. Um, but um, and I'm writing um, also a short story I've nearly finished that's kind of about sounds very um, possibly unappealing, but it's about writing and writing itself and mm-hmm. motherhood and pregnancy. Mm. That's a kind of um, little um, shorter piece. Mm-hmm. And then I'm, to be honest, right now, that's what I'm writing. And also um, various sort of, um, I'm writing a couple of things for the States for kind of, mm-hmm. um, so like when your book comes out, people might say, oh, can you write? Sure. Yeah, little essays and things. Yeah. So I'm doing those. So yeah. that's what I was doing on the train coming up. Yeah. People say short stories are harder to write than novels. And I just, every time someone says that, I go like, that's bullshit. Well, yeah, I think it depends maybe on what kind of writer you are. Like for me, definitely I find like, even conceiving of something quite long, quite difficult, mm. at least at the moment. Like, like my mind just seems to naturally go quite short. So yeah. the novel that I'm writing, I, I'm i kind of taking it one chapter at a time, mm. which is going quite well. That's good. <laughs> I think I had the um, revolutionary uh, <laughs> like insight that oh, novels are made out of chapters. I'll just, you know, I'll just, do one, <laughs> just do a chapter at a time. And I've, yeah. so I've kind of crept up to... To um to doing that, and, but you know you have to see how. I think with the novel, it's, it's there's something terrifying about the fact that you, you there's no way of knowing if it's any good until mm-hmm. until um, you spent years on it. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's a lot. It's a lottery ticket. I mean, I suppose I've written a novel, but it's it's mm-hmm. quite a different. It's you know it's a particular exercise. It's a very very short novel. And so, yeah. Did um, you get? Is it a one book deal that you got? Or yeah. 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 See, that's it's true. It's funny. And the other thing I I learned on this podcast is that. Doesn't matter how famous you get either. Your next novel isn't guaranteed. It's crazy. No. Yeah. No, I mean. I shouldn't say that to you. Your debut novel. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, I mean. I Let think, me crush your dreams. I think you're no, nothing's ever guaranteed. I guess because if you just write like some, well, I suppose yeah. if, you, if you're, I won't name if you're ex famous author, mm-hmm. maybe if you write. You if know, you're Will Self, you get another novel. List, I don't yeah. know, but basically, yeah, you you always you, you know. 
it's always about what you're writing yeah. now, what you write next. And, mm-hmm. and I found that definitely. It's not... Um, the fact that I've written this, the fact that everything's happened, it's wonderful, but I'm still basically back to square. You know, what am I writing yeah. now? I'm only... I'm only what I'm writing now as a writer, I feel, really. Yeah. That's a bit pessimistic. But, you know, you can't, you can't rest on your previous... Yeah. You can have a bit of a <laughs> Yeah, after this big tour, anyway. Anyway, thank you very much, thank Megan. Thank you, that was As usual, this will be Kate Feld pretending she's actually listened to the interview with Megan Hunter. Wasn't it a good interview? If you say so, Rob. Yes. Who have we got coming up? This is a quiz for you. Okay, this is a quiz for me. Yeah. Um, Two people. We've got coming up, and then there's more, but I've not told you. We've got Monique Rafi coming up. Correct, yeah. And we've got Rosie Garland coming up. Correct. Good. Do I win? You win nothing. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, well, what can you do, right? Okay, so do we have some more people to tell me about? No. No, okay. I'm not going to tell you at the moment because they're in flux. Okay. I hope that's not painful for them. (laughs) Yeah. Me too. Anyway, that's it. Let's stop talking bullshit. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.